This is NASA in Silicon Valley, episode 13. Today's guest is Dr. Pamela Markham, project scientist on the Stratospheric Observatory for Infrared Astronomy Project, also known as SOFIA. Pamela works with the SOFIA science team to support astronomers worldwide in exploring the solar system and beyond, specifically delving deep in the infrared to better understand our universe. In fact, she's participating in a conference this week focusing on expanding our understanding of how stars form. Sophia is also in the news this week. The team announced that scientists on board the Airborne Telescope directly observed the collapse of six clouds becoming stars larger than our sun. You can check out nasa.gov Ames for a story on the findings. Without any further delay, here's Dr. Pamela Markham. How did you get to NASA, or also how did you end up in Silicon Valley of all places? Right, um, I've had a very nonlinear career path. Actually, <laughs> <laughs> um, I started out as a typical astronomer, um, okay. in, in you know went to graduate school okay. in Wisconsin, and then uh, did a two-year postdoc at uh, University of Virginia, okay. um, where I was involved in um, my second NASA mission. When oh. I was a graduate student, I had the um, uh, honor of being able to work with a large team of people on um, the second uh, generation camera that was installed on on Hubble. So, oh, really? So that was that over at Langley that you did this? Um, a lot of the testing was done um, on actually out here in California. Oh, really? Um, so you're in yeah. Virginia, but you're working on like the camera stuff. Well, here. I wasn't at Virginia at the time. This okay. was as a graduate student. Oh, I nice. was actually involved in um, in that team effort. Okay. Um, at a you know kind of. N not at a deeply integrated level, but just enough to give me some insight into the amount of work that goes into putting together just an instrument that okay. goes on to the observatory, right? This wasn't, you know, Hubble. It was already Hubble um, was already launched. Up. Okay. Uh, so this was one of, the, it was the camera that helped replace the older camera that okay. wasn't that wasn't working. working. So well. <laughs> right. That's right. So this had the eyeglasses already installed. Yes, I remember hearing about that because when yeah. Hubble first went up, it was kind of fuzzy, so yeah. it kind of gave it Hubble some glasses. That's right. So I was involved at a very various stages. A very yeah, a sort of a loose level as a graduate student in some of that work. That was my exposure to NASA. So that's that's awesome because I'd imagine I, you're into NASA. If you if you're going into astronomy, <laughs> you're already into NASA. That's I'm guessing. <laughs> absolutely right. Yeah. So um, then I I uh, did a two year postdoc after my graduate work in at University of Virginia, which is okay. just you know down the road <laughs> uh, from Goddard. Okay. Cool. Uh, and um, it was out of Goddard that um, this other mission. A, a relatively small mission uh, was being developed. In fact, I got in, involved in sort of like the phase two of it. Okay. Um, it was a, a little camera um, that did a UV ultraviolet survey of okay. nearby galaxies from the shuttle. So this was really? one of the very few, if maybe only, I'm not sure, like telescope that was put up and operated in a professional sense on, on That's a show. nice, we'll go into more of the SOFIA program, oh, but that's yeah. a very good precursor of like a telescope on the shuttle. You know, you're, <laughs> you're right. There, <laughs> there's some, uh, yeah, interesting some parallels. Uh, parallels there. Um, so, uh, 
so I, I, I worked with the data there and um, got further immersed into NASA and then um, did a more traditional career path route, um, got a faculty position, okay. and I was a faculty member for you know well over a decade, and then an opportunity came up to become uh, sort of a temporary visiting scientist at NASA headquarters. Okay. And I think that was probably the beginning of, re- I mean, like, I'm coming back. full immersion <laughs> into NASA, right? So I stayed there for, for three years um, and uh, was deeply involved in um, helping with the management of the infrared portfolio where new detectors okay. are being developed and um, um, the various uh, research projects uh, that were being funded out of NASA headquarters through their various you know, grant programs and then um, wow. And then the opportunity to join Sophia as project scientist oh, really? ar- arose. And so you came from headquarters over to Ames to work on well, Sophia? not or? quite. <laughs> Again, yeah. not quite a linear path. So I went back to uh, my home institution where I was a professor and worked there for another year. Mm-hmm. And, th- and then um, transitioned into uh, a, f- a full NASA. Okay, cool. So then when... I'm guessing, is that just a job that shows up online? and Or actually, how do you even find out about this? Actually, it is. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, all of these positions are, are advertised and they're competed. Oh, wow. And um, there, there's actually a you know, couple of various websites you can um, look at to see what's coming up. And, and we can go more into the, mm-hmm. the origins of even explaining what Sophia is. But I'd imagine at that time, I know Sophia, like it flies out of Armstrong, which is mm-hmm. outside of LA, but then mm-hmm. a lot of the science is done over here at Ames in Silicon Valley. So were you aiming at coming here or where in California were you planning on heading? Was- yeah, well, um, Ames is where um, the, the science center is located. And so that's, that's where the project scientist is, <laughs> along with all of my science colleagues here. Um, the greater number of people involved on the team that are, um, you know, airplane experts, okay. the pilots, yes, exactly. and, and the crew. So they are all stationed um, in Southern California. Okay, they keep it they keep it up and running. But then the science, exactly. Well, it's it's actually interesting, um, and and it involves a lot of coordination, as you can imagine, yeah, across totally. these two NASA field centers and, and synergy. You know, and yeah, absolutely. So. Uh, you know, the, the plane is maintained, um, repaired when it needs to be repaired, mm-hmm. which it ca- happens every now and then. It's an old plane, by the way, you yeah. know, so it, it requires, you know, maintenance and, and those guys know how to do it. And um, they fly it out. Um, the, the weather there is mostly good. It's yes. sort of out in the desert more so than here. And <laughs> exactly. so it provides a good environment to, uh, fl- you know, to do the, to execute the science flights. The data is collected during flight. Okay. Uh, by the various science instruments, and would love totally. to get a chance to kind of describe what some of those instruments are a little bit later. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so the data is recorded in flight, um, put on an archiver, um, and then uh, downloaded and then transported up oh, wow. here to the science center where they actually do the data processing. Okay. Because it's just raw data. Yeah, they have to, have and, to make sense and of it. Doesn't, so. You know, you have to calibrate it, take out all the noise, the noise and the artifacts. And okay. Yeah. So may, maybe stepping back, because um, I know for me, even being somebody who was like super into NASA, yeah. but then finding out like the SOFIA program. So mm. SOFIA, what does that stand for? Because of course it's it's NASA and it's the government. We're going to have an awesome acronym. <laughs> so what and, does SOFIA stand for? <laughs> and it's an awesome acronym, isn't it? Um, uh, it stands for Stratospheric Observatory for 
mm-hmm. infrared astronomy. So it's a telescope on a plane. <laughs> That's, it's a telescope on a plane. And, uh, you know, the name kind of says it all, but yeah. it doesn't say the whys. It tells totally. you what it is, but it really doesn't tell you the whys. Well, and it's also, I mean, you think of you know astronomy and telescopes mm-hmm. and you're like, you know, so often it has to be in a place that's dry or up exactly. in a mountain or a place where there's not a lot of light pollution. Right. And so, sure, we're not the first ones to think, you know, hey, if you put a telescope, like, you I mean, you put a telescope on the shuttle. <laughs> so if you <laughs> have right. one on a plane that yeah. can get above all that noise, you can get really, like, like just a much better view of the universe. Yeah. And it really has to do with the nature specifically of infrared astronomy. Okay. Um, Of course, there's lots of ground-based observatories. Many of them are on tall mountains. Some of them aren't, you know, university campuses (laughs) or whatever. Those typically don't tend to be the professional um, uh, facilities, however. Um, but those are mostly optical. There, there are yeah. some exceptions. Okay. Um, um, at really long wavelengths, they tend to be ground-based, like radio telescopes and okay. sub-millimeter telescopes. But um, there's something unique about infrared. Yeah. And what that is is the following. It's pretty simple. The molecules, particularly water, okay. that is in the Earth's atmosphere, yeah. absorbs like crazy absorbs that infrared radiation coming from some astronomical source that we'd really like to study. Okay. Yeah, so... So so from the ground, you really don't... Like, if you had put an infrared telescope on the ground, you just really wouldn't get that. The it photons would, get caught yeah, <laughs> before yeah, they can get they all the way to the ground. They never quite make it to your telescope. So you got to get That's above right. all that, that water vapor That's right. in that atmosphere. Absolutely. So what Sophia does is it gets above most of that absorbing layer and catches those oh, wow. photons before they can get absorbed. Okay. Yeah. And so... How often does does the plane fly and, and it just mm-hmm. goes? I mean, imagine it goes up, starts taking a lot of data. Mm-hmm. That data gets sent down to here at Ames, and right. then they sort on through it. Yeah, um, it, it's a uh, it's amazing how much effort it takes to choreograph a flight, and I'll get mm-hmm. a little bit into yeah. that in a minute. But um, to answer your question, yeah. it uh, it flies usually about 10 hours for a given flight and um uh, over 80 percent of that flight is actually taking science so there is some time to allow the telescope to cool off because cold is better for infrared oh okay yeah so as we're climbing up we actually start opening the the cavity door Okay. We haven't really even talked about that yet. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so I'd imagine telescopes inside the plane, you open up this door yeah. for the telescope to actually go. It's like fully exposed to the air. The oh, air really? is just and that high fluttering up. by. Absolutely. Oh, Isn't that amazing? The engineering feat in allowing this airplane to have this tremendous hole in the back of the aircraft and be able to fly without. It's like a 747? Is that It's a right? 747. Oh, wow. SP. <laughs> okay. So that's like a little special uh, okay. designation. It's a little bit shorter okay. than most 747s to allow it to have a larger uh, flying range. And they, they, they put a door in it and put a giant telescope. And if it's ex- it's exposed to the elements, that I mean, I imagine the wind, yes, you know. Yes, it's, it's fully it's exposed. But the wind is so, by the time you get to altitude, yeah, the air is so thin that actually they're really the wind isn't as bad as you might think okay. it would be and furthermore you're working at infrared wavelengths okay which um allows some of the distortions you would see at visible optical wavelengths that we see with our eyes yeah it's not as bad when you're looking through infrared eyes 
Okay. Yeah. Okay. You can imagine. So what they really worried about in the beginning really? was the turbulence that you might see in the air as it's flowing over that hole, right? Okay. Imagine a whistle. You blow a whistle and it makes noise. We were afraid that actually. The wind that's <laughs> coming through over the airplane and then it's like, oh, big hole, door, yeah. and a telescope. So it kind of, right. yeah, you'd think that there'd be turbulence. And yeah. Like and maybe it would even whistle. We, you know, we jumped <laughs> at it. Yay. It didn't whistle when we first flew the plane and oh, wow. tested it for the first time. It was one of the jokes. It wasn't a big whistle as it was okay. going to the sky. But, like a um, flute. <laughs> the, exactly. the air is blowing over it. But the air is very thin by the time you get to the stratosphere. Okay. And also, the, the again, the, the engineering design around that cavity, it's not just like they cut a hole in the in the in yeah. the airplane no they put a little ramp in front okay. of that hole so the air kind of hits that ramp and kind of goes skips up. over it skips over yeah okay. and then there's like a little thing on the other side that kind of catches, catches it, it and just tries to keep that flow as laminar and smooth as possible okay so it's uh performed extraordinary well wow um, so, so what is some of the stuff that you get that you can capture from being that high up in an infrared mm-hmm. what's some of the science and things that you guys have learned that you right. couldn't have learned from like an, mm-hmm. a, an optical or a, a normal telescope on the ground right well what infrared allows astronomers to do is to peer into dense regions mm-hmm. of our own galaxy and other okay. galaxies as well but let's focus on our own galaxy for now where there where where there's young stars mm-hmm. either in the process of being formed or just recently formed but they yeah. are still surrounded by sort of the embryonic material from which they uh, were developed okay and um, if you try to look at these regions at optical With, wavelengths. Yeah, which, which our normal eyes can see. Yeah. It's just bright. Or, well, or, well, actually, you're going to see black. because oh, you don't see anything at all. Okay. Right. The, the, the light from from deep inside of those cocoons, the infrared light, or, or, or the well, well, sorry, the, the normal light, the visible light, just can't get out. Oh, wow. Right. Okay. It, so, um, you know, so you see these black areas um, surrounded by brighter areas where you can actually see the the, the photons you think for a normal human you see you see look in the sky and there's like a dense black area you just yeah. assume there's nothing there you would assume there was nothing there absolutely but it's not it's just the light can't get out right so. right so um if you just uh, i was looking for some pictures on the wall here <laughs> of maybe an uh of this of the night sky but if you just look at the milky way okay even with your i mean if you just go out in a relatively dark site you know mm-hmm. nice and just and look clear. at the milk you will actually see these dark area dark patches even yeah, in the milky absolutely. way doesn't mean there's not stars and there they're they're behind all of that dust that's keeping ah, you from seeing it. Okay. But then you look at that same patch of dark. In infrared. In the infrared with Sophia. Nice. Or, right. And you're going to suddenly see light. You're going to see stars. You're going to see nebulosity. And, you know, astronomers for, for, for many, many decades, or perhaps centuries, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, have really wanted to understand more about how stars are formed. Okay. Our sun is a star. Yeah. You know, so so how do we get here? It really comes down to origins, right? So what is the physical process involved, especially when you consider all of the factors that would disrupt star formation? Okay. Star formation in its essence is a 
blob of gas <laughs> <laughs> that by its own gravity starts starts condensing to condense compress uh to the point where a star is formed okay nuclear reactions begin yeah, it's like all of it just coalesces spins right. around it's so tight that right. the electrons just can't take it exactly <laughs> right but there are but there there's so many other forces when you Mm -hmm. Consider that this process is not happening in isolation. Okay. It's happening inside of a galaxy yeah. where there are differential forces trying to tear it apart. Okay. There might have been some recent star formation causing solar winds that's disrupting it. Okay. Right. There's a lot of... It's not just gravity pulling on itself to formulate. Right? There's all kinds of other noise and other stuff exactly. messing with it. Yeah. So there's a lot of things. So one of the things that astronomers are really interested in learning more about is what are those factors that mm -hmm. either make or break yeah. a star from being born in a given uh, cloud condition, yeah. right? So by looking at lots of different star formation regions that are subject to different kinds of external influences mm -hmm. or environments and looking at different stages of star formation, you can really then start putting together a complete picture oh, wow. of how we, our own star, came how to be. how it all came together. And the, pl and the planets as well. Oh, wow. And so uh, talk a little bit about um, so you get all this incredible data from this telescope, but I imagine there's also like other telescopes that are getting their own data. Mm -hmm. And it's like, is there interesting stuff that you find when that data, data is all like put together? Absolutely. Or, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Synergy is what, like, and, and cross mm -hmm. wavelength studies, yeah. you know, multi-wavelength studies, is really what the modern astronomer does. Yeah. There really isn't... You don't have to live on your own with your own <laughs> telescope. You can, like, capitalize on all the other work that other people are doing. Absolutely. So let me tell you one really cool yeah. example that, that um, happened. It was a really neat science result from a uh, couple of years ago now. Okay. Uh, um, and it really shows that kind of synergy. Sophia was used to observe one particular line of, of this of this molecular species okay and then a ground-based observatory was able to observe a submillimeter line at a longer wave much longer wavelength okay. in the optical or is it also infrared oh it's like way it's beyond infrared so if you imagine your mind's eye okay like the really high energy stuff would be like ultraviolet okay. and then you get to visible mm. where we can see with our eye and, and then, then on the other side the reddest <laughs> color you can possibly imagine just to the red <laughs> of that would be the infrared okay and then that goes on for and a long time <laughs> <laughs> yeah there's a lot of infrared right in the infrared spectrum and then on the on the end uh -huh. of that is when we start entering what we call the submillimeter and then the radio Ra radio just radio. like radio yeah. radio just like the signals that you pick up in every morning when you're getting ready for work yeah. oh wow yeah and so I had one telescope looking at that submillimeter thing and then Sophia right. looking at the infrared well or, so yeah so what happened was you know this one particular um, uh, molecular species produced this one line that Sophia could detect molecular species you mean it was like a like a like a cluster of stars or is this like a it, nebula or something it, or what is it well it was looking at a nebula okay where some recent stars had just been formed okay and what was interesting is this nebula had just produced some stars that were similar to our own sun oh cool so that was kind of cool like excellent call mm -hmm. it solar mass stars um 
But uh, this one particular, it's it sort of it's sort of like a molecule, right? Okay. A, a little cluster of atoms bound together. Yeah. Um, that uh, produced a line. Okay. Uh, um, an emission feature. Okay. Um, let me go into that a little bit. So yeah. w- I can't talk about spectra. I know. <laughs> without <laughs> it's like, really kind of well, explaining. Like, like one question, like explain that, and we just keep getting deeper, <laughs> deeper and deeper. And deeper. And okay. Deeper. So don't let me forget I guess that's to come. Science. Yeah. Don't, exactly. <laughs> don't let me forget to come back to the story though, because it's a really okay, interesting okay. synergy I'll story. I'll hold you to it. Okay. Good deal. <laughs> um, the spectrum is really just a rainbow. Yeah. Uh, when when you see a rainbow and a real rainbow, what you're seeing is a tiny. You're ti- You're seeing a small slice of the bigger rainbow. That's really the mm-hmm. the spec. You know the electromagnetic radiation slash spectrum that okay. that we talk about. Um, when you look at a rainbow just on the the purple side, that would be where the ultraviolet would start. And okay. on the red side would be where the infrared, and then further on would yeah. be the radio would start. Um, a spectrum is simply taking light mm-hmm. from an object and 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 smearing that light out across its for uh, across yeah. color. Okay? okay, so a color is like a wavelength. So you're just saying, you know, how much is this thing emitting at this color? How much is this okay. thing emitting at this other color? You're then, building up a spectrum, and that helps that. you understand what that thing is. Absolutely, because it tells you different colors or different atoms or different molecules or different or you temperatures. Know. Oh wow! Okay, yeah, the whole shape of the spectrum tells you about the temperature. So you can then infer like that's what we're looking at. We know yeah. what it is. We know it's oxygen or it's a molecular, you know, organic right. thing. You know? Right. Well, so let me get to that. That's because it's a little nuance on this. So yeah. I, I kind of described what the spectrum looks like kind of overall. But on top of this, <laughs> this, this overall sort of spectrum um, is our, our discrete little blips. Sometimes okay. they're above this continuum spectrum okay and sometimes they dip below as an absorption feature okay each atom and molecule in the universe yeah ha- produces its own special fingerprint signature of lines yes. so if you see a series of lines um you might say ah i know that those lines were produced by hydrogen Exactly, yeah. And you might see another bunch of lines. Like some college science classes are coming back to me. The fingerprints. <laughs> there you go, fingerprints. Think of yeah. them as fingerprints. And, so and you so, know what it is. Yeah, yeah. so the point is, you, by, by looking at the, the, a, a spectrum mm-hmm. data that Sophia produces by many of its instruments, you can instantly recognize, ah, there must have been some carbon monoxide in that cloud oh, okay. that I was looking at. Wow. Um, or, and measure how much there was, right? Okay. So it's a, it's, it provides the ability. Isn't it amazing? That's insane. You're looking at yeah. this thing that's like light like years un, away. Un, un, inconceivably, far, far, inconceivably far away. And, you and you're able to say is. how much of each kind like, of chemistry How much chemistry of oxygen, how much of hydrogen. Yeah. 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 And then, so you, I want to bring you back to, this, to the original story. Thank so, you. Yeah. Okay, so this particular uh, molecule yeah. produced a line that Sophia could see, so okay. an emission feature, yeah. a blip. A, a fingerprint. A fingerprint. Yeah. <laughs> and then it also produced a line at longer wavelengths yeah, that, at okay. the submillimeter that this ground-based observatory okay. was able to measure. 
by taking a ratio of the strength of those two lines, Mm -hmm. it could tell the scientists who were studying this cloud how long this cloud had been in the process of making these solar mass stars. And it turned out that the answer Mm -hmm. was a lot longer than just simple physics would have uh, predicted. Oh, wow. So it was kind of, it opened up a mystery rather than confirming something we already knew. So the implication was that maybe, um, so the collapse was going slower than it, than it quote should have thought yeah and uh so one thought is maybe magnetic field lines another of those factors that sort of mess with star formation (laughs) was helping to uh oppose the gravitational collapse okay so what's cool is sophia now has an instrument it's a brand new instrument okay that can measure uh magnetic field Really? Okay, yeah. so that gives you one more piece so we, of that puzzle. Absolutely. So hopefully, uh, you know, in a year or so from now, we'll be able to go back. We'll, come, we'll have you right back and we'll start talking about it. And say, aha, that was the answer. Or maybe there will be another or mystery maybe it opens another open. door further on. <laughs> cool. So so if somebody wanted to get more information on Sophia, read more up on it, where do they need to go? Well, um, probably the first place would be our Science Center webpage, uh, which is at... Um, uh, www.sophia.usra.edu. Okay. okay. Um, and there's also uh, a, a tab off of the uh, nasa.gov website as well. So if mission. you just go to nasa.gov and go under the missions um, and then Sophia, you'll be able to find that as well. Excellent. And, and this is a reminder for everybody, uh, if you have any questions, more questions that we want to relay over to Pam, um, you can tweet at us uh, at NASA Ames and also there's at Sophia Telescope um, and of course we use the hashtag NASA Silicon Valley. So thank you so much for coming over Pam. It was my pleasure Matt. <laughs> Excellent. I- I'm sure we'll have more content in the future and have you back as our returning Jeopardy champion. I look forward to it. Thank you very <laughs> much. Bye-bye.